Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mentors. I'm your host, Jeremy Boros, and today we're chatting with the living legend of film, TV, and music that is Alan Arkish. With a career spanning 40 years, Alan is an encyclopedia of film knowledge and experience. Winning an Emmy for directing in the miniseries The Temptations, Alan has worked on over 200 episodes of TV as a director and producer, and he's collaborated with everyone from Roger Corman and Frank Sinatra to Renee Zellweger, Bette Midler, Denzel Washington, Mick Jagger, and the Ramones. Either as a director and or producer, Alan has worked on Heroes, Nashville, Ally McBeal, Switched at Birth, NCIS, CSI, Dawson's Creek, Fame, Moonlighting, Crossing Jordan, The Twilight Zone, and recently, a series of unfortunate events, just to name a few. With a lifetime of fascinating stories and experiences, it was admittedly difficult to edit this interview. Nonetheless, we hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with your mentor, Alan Arkish. So I'm here uh, with Alan Arkish. It's great to be with you. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. And uh, we're in your super cool office that is completely covered from top to bottom with album records, CDs, DVDs, cassette tapes. I think that's a great <laughs> reflection of who you are as a person between rock and film. Yeah, this is yeah. my space. And it's one of the things that over the years, I guess I built my life to have a space like this because I've been collecting records since I was in high school. And then when I came out to Los Angeles, I met people, uh, which was when I was, which was about 1973. So I was 25. So I was around people who had movie collections, 16 millimeter. And that was a big influence on me. And so when movies became available, I started buying them on VHS, et cetera. So. Got it. Do you remember uh, the first movie you saw that inspired you or TV show, I guess? Yes. Um, it's interesting. The first movie that I saw was Peter Pan. The whole idea of uh, the Lost Boys, the whole idea of Never Never Land and Never Growing Old, so captivated me and wendy and the fighting the pirates and all of that but then um i started wa when i started watching tv when i was in kindergarten or first grade i can't remember which uh on abc at night they had the walt disney hour disney was now expanding uh not just mark stuff in theaters but they had just they were building disneyland and they wanted a television outlet and they had all this cartoon programming and all this stuff so they got this spot and about uh, two or three months into it they ran a um a, a, a part of a movie where they were made them into movies called davy crockett king of the wild frontier mm -hmm. now i cannot think in your generation or anyone now of a specific event that so captivated a certain age of boys you know what's the, what's the one um about the ice skating princess or frozen uh, frozen uh -huh. like frozen seems to have had that huge impact right. okay and now it's become a thing you make them to have that happen that this was one of the first it was continued so they would say coming soon the whole idea of having something to look forward to in fiction or that was going to continue completely obsessed me and hence i'm doing television so where you are now because that's another question i yeah. have for you i mean 
You've directed over 150 episodes of TV. Uh, probably 250. Yeah. I mean, I just went on your IMDb <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and tried to count last night, but yeah. it's in the hundreds. Yeah. Film, music videos. At this point, is it just your DNA to get up every morning and want to make stuff, be a director? What motivates you to get up? It's in my DNA to be creative. I mean, for obviously, I've been directing for 42 years. So it's in my DNA to direct at a certain point. And I've, now I've done 250 episodes as a director, another 200 as a producer. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the number of hours I have spent doing this job, I've figured out recently that. I have spent two years of my life riding around in a location van. <laughs> That's a frightening statistic. Yeah. I have actually read and shot listed 150,000 pages of script. Wow. So the bloom is off the rose a bit for that, although I still get excited about things. But the creativity of it, the making of mixes, the... Um, uh, monologues I do that are my autobiography. The fact that I'm teaching that has not dimmed one whit, you yeah. know. Uh, so I've channeled a lot of that energy into things which I did before, but the making of films so dominated my time mm -hmm. that now I'm spreading out a little bit. Well, let's go back. Can you tell us about getting into NYU, getting into film school? Early on, I, I'm a being a baby boomer. Mm -hmm. Okay, there was a divide between my parents and me, and our aspirations, mm -hmm. and it kind of started to really come to focus when I wanted to go to college. Like all good Jewish boys who are middle class uh, in that generation, it was all about college and getting into an Ivy League school and being pre-law, pre-med. I got into this one college. I did very, very well in college, much better than I did in high school. But I felt like I was not part of the 60s, that I was at this place and I was all the stuff I was interested in was not in this town in Pennsylvania. I got into NYU film school. And so that was my goal, but to my, I was able to talk them into, and to con them into <laughs> saying that it's in New York, you'll be able to keep your eye on me and all this stuff. So there was a family sure. push and pull as well, and they were getting divorced. So there was a lot of things. So I ended up in the East Village at NYU. What did you submit to get into NYU at that time? Ooh. Did you have to make a film, or was it no, photography? That, okay, let's... <laughs> here's NYU Film School. No Tish. Okay. Okay. Tish is like 10 years in the horizon. Okay. What you had was the eighth floor of a building on Green Street, Okay, Green and Washington Square South. Right. That street. So you were like one block off the square and you went up in the freight elevator to the eighth floor and half of that floor was the film school. The other half of the floor was the Serbo-Croatian libraries and studies. Okay. So <laughs> there's your status of where the film school was at. A little different now. Yeah, yeah. and we had an equipment room we had a room for screenings. You could do a two-track mix, dialogue and music. And that was also a classroom. We had another classroom. And then we had a room where the editing equipment was. And that was it. So it's four rooms. There was maybe 80 students in it. Was Martin Scorsese your teacher? Well, what happened was that I think the NYU people will find this amusing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the person who ran the school is a god of 
young filmmakers. Haig Mnugin's effect on the filmmakers that emerged out of the 60s and 70s cannot be un underestimated. He was the heart and soul of that school. Uh, and anytime you see someone who said they went to NYU, they were influenced by Haig. It was no structure. Haig was just there. He ran the school and that was it. He had a sight and sound class where there would be four of you and you got a hundred feet of film each week and you went out inevitably into Washington Square Park. Right. <laughs> because you had three hours to make a movie. Okay. He'd give you the assignment. One person would be the camera. One person would uh, be acting in it usually. One person would be the director and the other person would be editing last week's film. And that was it. And so that was your first. And then your second one was, um, when you moved up, was Fundamentals of Filmic. And then the, the, the first class, Sight and Sound, was silent. And it was all shot on Bell and Howell IMOs. Now, IMO was a, uh, a camera that was made out of cast iron. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this really sounds like the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> it had three lenses on a turret. And you wound it up. And I think you got 17 seconds of shooting. They were unbreakable, okay? Nonetheless, all the keys to wind them up had been lost. Mm. So you had a doorknob <laughs> that was the same size. And when you wound it, you're, you, know, you were so excited, you got sweaty. It was hard to wind them up. And that wow. was what you used. All right. Because the school had only two cameras that could do sound. So uh, that was that question. So now you have fundamentals of filmmaking was the next one. And everyone got 400 feet of film. And you make a film. Now, in that class, the teacher, I'll say his name, his name is Harry Horowitz. Uh, Jonathan Kaplan is in that class and Jamie Anderson and a lot of my close friends. He says, you know, rather than have 400 feet of film for each of your films, what can you do with like eight, four minutes of film? Let's put all our film together and we'll make a porno. <laughs> no way. Yes. <laughs> wow. So everyone agrees and we all have jobs on the film. And so they make this, this porno. Um, this is 1968 in the fall. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, the name of the, the film is These Raging Loins. So <laughs> it's not that porno. You know yeah. what I mean? It's really just goofy. Uh -huh. It's really goofy. It would be barely R-rated today, you yeah. know? And it was just really funny. But when That's they finished, why we love NYU. <laughs> yes, and then they ran it. That was the thing they should never have done because the school found out. I mean, it was the talk of the school. It was hilarious, you know? Were, and, were the actors from the drama department? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I wasn't in that fundamentals okay. of filmmaking so you know it was a big stink and harry horowitz got fired but now you needed someone to teach the rest of that course and to teach in the second semester and they're really again this is 68 there are no film teachers right, right. no one has done that if you're not an academic sure. so haig took his thought of about his best student who had graduated three years earlier, was in the midst of making an independent movie called Who's That Knocking at My Door? Uh, and that was Marty Scorsese. Did he share with you any advice or what was like one of the greatest takeaways you got from NYU? NYU was the template, in a way, for my experiences at New World Pictures. Mm -hmm. The sense of solidarity of people of that generation and the fact that we were not only commonly bound by our interest in school, but 
we were the music, you know, we were starting to see ourselves in the reflection of culture. And it was uh, in civil rights, uh, anti-war, all of that was as part of this picture, which was a constant part of the campus. Right. And so that's what was going on. And you, I needed to find a role model, someone who was serious about a passion. And I saw it in Haig Mnugin. And Marty started teaching this class on American film. And it was like a thunderbolt. It was the time of the begin of the real setting in of the auteur theory. And there were movies coming out of Hollywood now like Bonnie and Clyde or like The Graduate and then Easy Rider. And now word was getting out about Roger Corman's movies and how Roger had hired film students. I mean, the key, How'd you get in with him? Well, the key to how Roger got it was he was... He had too much work to do as a producer. And he thought, well, maybe I'll get a film student to do this. So now we're all seniors in film school, just cut to the chase. And now we win the top five places in or four out of five at the National Student Film Festival. Jonathan Kaplan for Stanley Stanley. I came in third with Septuagenarian. And there's a whole switch now because Marty was a great teacher and we had some equipment. And Jonathan Kaplan gets a phone call um, one night. This guy says, Lowe's is Jonathan Kaplan. He says, yes. He says, my name is Roger Corman. And I've been told uh, that uh, by your film teacher that you're a good director and I need someone to come out to Los Angeles and direct this movie called Night Call Nurses. And Jonathan thinks it's John Davison, our friend, who's a Corman fanatic. And he goes, very funny, John. And he hangs up. Roger calls him back and says, really, this is really Roger Corman. Do not hang up. <laughs> Here's my situation. You know, I need someone to come in and start directing this in two or three weeks. I forget which it was. You have to rewrite the script and you're going to direct this and you'll, we're going to shoot it in Los Angeles. Jonathan is so gobsmacked and he is brought up on the Upper West Side. And his father was a composer and his mother was an actress. So he knows theater. But he's a New Yorker. And so he splurts out that, geez, Los Angeles, I don't know how to drive. And Roger says, I don't care if you can drive. Can you direct? <laughs> John says, yes. He says, my assistant Francis will get on the phone and you'll be on an airplane tomorrow morning. I'll see you tomorrow afternoon. Was there actual training when you worked for Corman or were you just kind of thrown into the fire? Okay, to here's it the out? training. That's the room with the movieolas in it. Roger wants to see a cut of a trailer for Caged Heat in next week. And we would have three or four or five days to cut a trailer and devise an ad campaign. I feel like the speed of which you were working probably really helped you in TV. Usually. Yeah. Usually. And, and just listening to you talk about your experience at New World, the, the thing that I, I feel it was about, which made him so special, is number one, trust. He trusted the people he brought in to do their jobs, to do them well, to do them with passion, and to just keep working. And I think that as someone who graduated semi-recently, you know, that's what I what I've experienced so far in the business is a huge lack of trust that exists now. Mm -hmm. And also this desire to, uh, with a lot of people that I know, including myself, of perfectionism as opposed to just being creative, making stuff, getting it out there, not worrying if it's, you know, the most perfect film that will ever play a festival, but just continuing to work, to grow, to flex your, your skills. I feel like that's just rare today. Well, see, so you put your finger on it. 
of what it was, where he was expanding his company. He wanted to be competitive. He had the product that was being made by film students. And it wasn't like he was just hiring them once. All of a sudden, Joe and John and I were on salary. And we were there all the time. And other people started, because he had his own company, he wasn't just doing film, a film as a producer, director. He needed people as a staff. And so people like Gail Ann Hurd started working there. And uh, all these other people started working in different departments. In a way, he created a family. He yes. created a trusting environment. What I want to ask you is today, I mean, obviously, Corman is still working. Yeah. Does But does anything else exist like what he created now? Not what he created now. Well, not, you know not what? necessarily from Corman, but just in general, because. Well, when I, you know, I'm teaching at the AFI and I get a lot back for the graduate students and I get a lot back from them and their attitudes and their knowledge. Um, and I feel that some of these films come out well because everyone has bonded over a common thing. Mm. And yes, it's a highly competitive atmosphere. And it's um, regimented, it's codified, you know, this is how it's done. Uh, but there is that energy. And when you do a, a TV series, certain ones where often the ones I've directed the pilot or whatever for, uh, and you get along really well with the showrunner, and now you're picked up for the first season. And you sit down and talk about what it is that he is or she is going to make and how do they want to make it? Do you want to have long dialogue scenes? Do you want to do it this way or that? Cause you're just still forming it. It starts to form as a group and you start hiring the people. And one of your jobs as the director producer on a series is help design the parts of the, the, the um, pilot that everyone likes and make it part of the style of the show. How can I design the sets, how can I design the lighting and the crew so that this is what we want our show to look like? Because until the mid eighties, there was no TV shows that had, they really didn't have a look. They didn't have, Interpretation, and going, yeah. they didn't have an auteur sense of that. Oh, that's St. Elsewhere. You know, that's Moonlighting. These shows had, the one that set the whole standard was Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues appeared with a, defined style and defined way they wanted it to look because they wanted it to look very gritty. And so the camera moved all the time and was not like any other cop show before that. So as you're forming it, you kind of form a team. And that first season of a series can be incredibly exciting because you're discovering what the series is. And usually somewhere about the third or fourth episode, fifth episode, if you're getting decent enough ratings that hang in there you do an episode where everything kind of worked all the other it really did come together on that one and now you go that's what it is so you start doing it and and but along the way in the first season you have this incredible sense of discovery which is hard to continue the challenge of television is just continuing the quality considering the time and all that you can't really make big mistakes so there, that exists within the television world. What's your preparation like when you're coming in to guest direct something? Obviously, you watch the show. You see yeah. what the tone is. What else are you thinking about? Do you get to pick crew or? You don't get to pick anyone. You, okay. You're stepping in. So what I try to do, and hopefully I'll have the script ahead of time, is I will dive into the script and do the notes that I need so that 
the first two meetings are clear. I understand the material and have a point of view because I have to win everyone over. So the first meeting is inevitably the uh, concept meeting. And so you have to figure out who's in charge. Sometimes the, the showrunner is just going to go through the whole thing and say what he or she wants. Sometimes it's just like the crew is bored and they just say this and that. And uh, we'll do this on a location. We'll build this. It's all, they've done so many, you know. And so sometimes you have to pick your places and say, I know we'll deal with this later. Here's what I think about this scene we should watch, and I'd love to have clear it up in another meeting. You don't want to slow it down, mm -hmm. but you want to say, you know, I think like this car for this character is really important, I think, because of where it pays off later. So let's make sure we, we get to the car meeting because they're always on the transpo meeting soon, or we talk about a set, and you say, you know, it really says this. You always go by story. Never get away from the story. You can get anything you want if you're helping the story because that's all they care, the writer's listening for. And you say, you know, it says here that they see something out the window, et cetera. It, let's make sure when we look for a location that this room has this kind of view and you are bringing up the things in the script that they can do something about now. And so when you go out location scouting, which is the next meeting, you have understood the blocking in the location. So the first thing I do is I think about the shot list and the blocking for the location scenes. Mm. Don't worry about the sets. Sets I'll have time with, the locations. So I know I can't do this in this room because it only has one door. And there's supposed to be two people coming in from different directions. So you can, they're not thinking of that. Not what the blocking, they're thinking, what's our accessibility? What's the cost of this location? How can we make a day out of it? And so you have to come in and look at it with the eye of, here's what we're going to shoot and not be fooled into, oh, this is such a pretty room. Where's the windows? Which way are the windows? Where are we going to light to? Wait a minute, this is on the second floor? You want me to make two location moves on this day when we shouldn't be on the second floor here? You know, we should be on the first floor. How much prep time do you generally have? Seven days. Seven days. And then shoot for? Eight to seven or eight. And then? Or more. And then I, I was speaking to another TV director who was saying that he doesn't even go to the editing room. He has mm. nothing to do with post. Really? He just shoots. And then they have such a factory system for the show he works on that he's already on to the next episode. Well, I don't do that. At this point, I can. it's so clear how I you know, shoot stuff, that the editors have no problem putting together my scenes. I can call them up and say, is it making sense to you? Oh, absolutely. I know when I watch your dailies, I know when I'm supposed to start here and, you know, it falls together. So when I go in the editing room, what I do is I get the editor's cut and I watch it and don't take any notes. Just watch it. How does it make me feel? What's missing overall? What's there? You know, and of course you sit there and go, oh, that's cut exactly the opposite of how I planned it. Or usually it's like, we're not getting enough traction with the story and we need more emotion because you're just looking at the whole thing. And then I may watch it twice, but never take notes. I don't want to take my eyes off the screen. I want to, then I go in the editing room without notes. I mean, I could do notes, but I don't. Um, and we start from the beginning. And I know now just from looking at it, what we need to do. So we'll watch for, I'll first I'll give the editor 
an overall concept of how I feel about it. And then I'll also say, this scene's great. Make sure they understand. I would never have done it that way. That's good. I think we got a problem with this, this, and this. This character, this actor, it's my fault. It's weak. So this, or you'll say, see, the way you have this scene cut is all about this person, but I think we just got to flip it. And I know we have the footage to make it this point. Just give them the broad strokes and say, let's start at the beginning. And don't dictate all the cuts unless it's something you want. Well, how do you, when you're working as a guest director on other projects, bring your Alan Arkish interpretation to what you're doing? How is it possible to infuse your creativity into something that's been laid out for you? And Well, the first thing you do is do it exactly right. That is, do it the way they want it. Okay. That is, you know, on the side of the LAPD police cars, it says to protect and serve. That is your mantra as a guest director, to That's protect great. and serve, right? That's great. Yeah. You want to give them the show with those shots, with those beats. That's what they want. That's what I learned from Roger. You're doing, you know, uh, you're doing rock and roll high school. You want you told me the high school was going to blow up at the end. It better fucking blow up. <laughs> That's on the poster, right, you know? Right. If we're doing a car chase movie, better give me the good crashes. If the person driving the car happens to be a socialist and that's the thing, make sure they have a sexy girlfriend, you know? It's like give the stuff that the person is expecting. So on my first episode of St. Elsewhere, which is my first network show, I've been directing Fame before that. Right. The first AD after the first day said, here's the important thing. Mark Tinker is the director producer. You've got, we've got to learn the style of the show, but whatever you do, don't try to do shots that outdo Mark. Just do think, what would Mark do here? And do your best version of that. Any advice for working with uh, showrunners or studio heads or whomever producer person uh, that you don't see eye to eye with? Here's what you got to do from the beginning. Um, let's not just jump to eye to eye. Let's go back a little bit. When you are preparing to do an episode of a show that you haven't done before and you're watching episodes, catalog in your mind which episodes are better than others. Just make a note, you know. And think about the departments. Is that scene really well written? Make a note of that scene in your mind. Mm. Write it down and say this scene or another scene. Usually you should do two scenes when you write. Or you look at an episode and you just go, it's a great location, you know, and they really did a good, write that down. You know, you look at nothing, you know, the cameraman did something. So when you meet these people, you can not just say, oh, I really like your work, you say, you know, I really like your work. That night scene in that alleyway, I know how hard it was be to light that. And how many other scenes did you have that day? And then they'll say, and they go, it was dynamite. You know, you got everything out of that. Or you say to a production designer, who found the location? You get them talking, you know, what color was it originally? Well, we just put this in. I said, it works really well. It reminds me, on my episode, Desiree, I, they you appreciate know. your specificity with yes. the work. Be specific. Yeah. Because then they know you're a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So you talk to the writers and you say, you know, in that episode, I never saw that twist, whatever it is. Or that monologue is fantastic. It's not a wasted word. Whatever it is, because you want them to do it for you and you want to make sure that you can get some of the things that you want and not step on their toes. Then develop a really good relationship with your first AD. Ask them what episodes they worked on. And if you haven't seen one of those, make sure you see them. Because then you can come back and say, how long did you take for that? How long did you take that? Did you go over? Did you go under? Mm. Because they're going to control your life on the set. So if they say two and a half hours and you think, you did that in two and a half hours, can we watch it together and tell me how you did that? And then you sit down and they say, that's all the same shot. And you go, of course it is. And how did they get all that coverage? That's actually the B camera. And so then you say, so the DP will cross light something like that because you know how it's done. You're a pro. And so he's able to run the peak. Yes, absolutely. You know, like on Nashville, there was a couple, a bunch of scenes in my script, highly emotional scenes involving a father and two daughters that blew into big argument fights. And one daughter is 16 and one is probably 13. And I'm thinking, man, if we spend all day trying to do this, it's going to wear them down. It's not going to happen. Now, there's ways I've learned how you cross your camera. Usually you always get two cameras. but um, And usually because of the lighting, don't cross the axis. Just shoot both on the same axis. But in this case with everyone arguing and yelling, you want to, if you get a take, you want that whole take because it's going to have a life to it. So I started thinking, okay, I know how to, I'll talk to the DP and I'll say, I really want to do this. I know you may not want to, because most don't, but you know, if I tell you where we're going to be and how we're going to stage it, you'll have an option. You can put white cards on the floor. I kind of know the ways you can, or do whatever you need to do so you can have a chance to plan it. Because I really think it would be best for the actors and it'll get us out of that scene quicker. Is shooting comedy different than shooting drama? Very much. What do you need to know? Both of them have to do with an internal rhythm. I talk to my students about this a lot. When you're watching a rehearsal, you are you feel a tension between your internal clock and how fast you think the scene should play and the way it's playing. And then when you watch it on the monitor, it also you're measuring against this internal clock. And then when you watch it in the editing room, it's the same thing. At a certain point with enough skill, you know how you to get it to what it's going to be in the editing room on the screen. Yeah. You know, you know how to, the tempo you need to make a scene work. And it's not just talking fast. It's not, it's a whole bunch of elements of, blocking it so there's motion and movement on the part of the actors that looks very natural and real. And if it's paused for too much or something to you want to underscore a point, when to move the camera, when to underscore a point by having the actor move and giving them a reason for that. It's like Frank Capra said, movies are life plus. So you kind of get to know after a certain while where the rhythm of it is. So there's a one rhythm for comedy and obviously there's other rhythms for drama. And you really know that you're, you're in sync with yourself and you're, you understand all this when you're watching dailies and you see a scene and the scene's unfolding and there'll be a line and you go, oh, I missed that. 
I should have hope we did another take. And you'll hear yourself say on the set, let's go back and pick that up. And go, right. Okay. I am in focus because you really have to see it like it's going to be at the end. But you have to be in the moment so that you can fix everything. So there's that. Um, and you just approach comedy where you still got to look for the truth of what's going on and so forth. But there are ways that you can make something funny by having the person who's being funny really commit to what makes that person funny. You look at the Melissa McCarthy, um, uh, Kristen Wiig, it's just a, you know, Will, you know, Farrell, all these great people, they commit to the characterization. Now, there's the broad sense of commitment, but there's also, in Allie McBeal, when the women are looking at, it's the beginning of the episode, and the three of them are doing sculpture, right? And they change the guy, and now the guy drops his, the model, and he drops his towel, and he's hung like a horse, right? And they all react, and they're trying not to laugh too much, but they all see it. And you can, it's, it's in a raking three shot, so there's no cut. And you can see what's on their faces, and they're looking towards each other, and I make sure I put Allie down towards the end so she's looking towards the camera because she's the star and all this stuff. And as they're trying to not laugh and so forth, you know, and, and you know, looking at all this and trying to do their work, the, they made a little too much of a bustle, and along comes the, the teacher of the class and says, is there a problem here? And it's the outline for the, for the cold opening. And Allie's roommate says, oh, no, everything's fine, but we're going to need more clay. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's a... <laughs> it's so funny. It's yeah. a killer line. And the first take is way over. It's like... Nyah, nyah. And I, I said, you know what? Make it more conversation. Like it's, you know, like you're not trying to make a joke for everyone. Right. You just, you want your friends to be amused. Sure. So you don't oversell it. And that's what's in the show. So with comedy is how do you pitch it? You know, and it's okay to try a little above, a little below. And sometimes the producer will come up and goes, you're going too far. I said, well, just seeing where the top is. I hear you. Knowing the sandbox boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that. And in drama, it's um, making sure that the characters know what's behind what they're doing. What is what? What are we trying to get here from the other person? And a common problem is that actors will make in a drama scene they'll approach it like it's a drama scene so they start acting dramatic or they start taking pauses at the beginning of the scene and that kills the scene so what i always keep my eye out is for that in the rehearsals you know and then they'll say no i was just working my way fine and then after the first take i'll say i really think you got to get quicker through there because this part is you have that energy trying to get this across. So then when you get to that important point here, it's so great. I want the audience to really stop and take that in. And they'll only work if that's where your pause is. And then before we roll, I'll say, let's just run the lines really fast just to run them. So now they run them really, really fast. And I go, okay, well, that's not it. But... I got the point of what everyone was saying there and let's go and you go. So now they are, they're going faster than they would. Right. And then when you get, 
So you do two takes, three takes of that. So now when you get to the coverage where you promise them, we're going to see your emotional stuff right here in the close-ups every, you know, they're ready in a faster rhythm. Um, just one other thing about acting. Uh, what advice would you give to younger directors on working with actors? Because a lot of directors I've experienced, they don't know the language, they don't understand, they don't like actors at all. Take an acting class. Take acting classes. Roger Corman, again, Roger saw my first work and he says, you know about the camera. I think you got to learn now about acting. And he said, I'll, I'll put you in touch with my acting teacher, Jeff Corey, mm. who I went to. Originally. Worked with uh, Jack Nicholson and yes. the whole group. Yeah. And so uh, he says, I'll pay for the first month, you know, which I was shocked. And so I went to meet with Jeff and Jeff said, yes, I helped Roger and all this stuff. But I says, I'm, we are not going to tell anyone that you're a director in this class. You are going to be treated like an actor and you have to do everything that they do, you have to do. And uh, it was an incredible experience. First off, everyone in the, you, you learn about acting before it becomes good. You know what I mean? You're not seeing the finished product. You are seeing it not work or to varying degrees work. And you can't blame the writing. Because it's, you know. Tennessee Williams. Tennessee, yes, it's all that stuff. Yeah. And it was just so illuminating and seeing that. And then also having to stand up in front of them and do some acting and be terrible at it. And hearing how Jeff pulled it out of me. And sometimes he'd treat me really mean so that I would know not to do that. Mm. So that would be my advice is to find an acting teacher. I want to go back a little bit just in terms of today, a student graduates, let's say from a film school, any film school makes a short does. Okay. It doesn't mm -hmm. get into Tribeca or can or anything. What's the bridge you see now for those filmmakers right out of school, or maybe not even having gone to school into the professional world. I, I have to say the same thing I've said to everybody. Take any job. It doesn't matter. Take any job because you really don't know what you're doing. When I came out here and I talked to a trailer editor, they needed someone to run errands, mm -hmm. you know. John was, you know, and he said, come and do that because Joe doesn't drive and you need to drive him around and, you know, get the dailies and do all the film, you know, go to labs and do all this stuff. And so I took that job and... It got me into every editing room that Corman had and watching the editors and learning how to edit from asking them questions and meeting other people in the film business and and um, watching them working. Like the very first editing room I went in, besides the New World one, I had to go over to this editing room for this movie called Caged Heat, which was a women in prison movie. Women of flesh behind bars of steel kind of thing. You know, that was a big genre then. So I go to watch this thing and I, I have to figure out how to thread a 30, because I need to pick music for it because Joe's cut the trailer and I need to find some music and they have the score. So I'm watching it on a double-headed movie over one side, a score on it. The other is the dialogue. No one's mixing it. I don't know how to even do it. I'm watching it in the editing room, standing up or sitting on a stool. And, you know, it's pretty good actually and it's got all that stuff in it but there is this subplot about how the warden is trying to control all the women prisoners 
by saying that they have mental problems and giving them shock treatments. Mm. And this is true. And so it's got this thing. And so they all break out. And as I'm watching it and changing the reels, says this guy comes over watching it. And I, and I, he says, uh, oh, I directed this. I said, it's really good. This is my name's Alan Arches. My name's Jonathan Demi. Okay. So. Yeah. So the point is be out there, be working, make relationships. You never know when Roger Corman's going to call you on the phone and ask you to come help him. So just keep going, you know, don't, yeah. I think there's a lot of pressure to get that first feature made, yeah. you know, get into a big festival. It was funny when I was watching Hollywood Boulevard and Candy goes into Dick Miller, the agent's office. Yeah. It's the same thing we're talking about today. Yeah. It's, oh, I can't get an agent till I've done good work. An agent won't be interested in me, but I can't get good work without an agent. So should filmmakers even be focusing on representation or just keep doing stuff? Just keep doing stuff. Do you have any other closing advice for people starting out in the business? Um, make sure that the reasons for what you're doing. When I've done things for the wrong reasons, when I made a movie because I thought, oh, it'd be great to make a studio movie. It was torture mm. and the movie flopped. You know, I've got two movies that I made that have a zero on the tomato meter, okay? Both of them were made for the wrong reasons and were miserable parts and one of them drove me into therapy, you know? So <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> now, we live in the real world and I took a lot of TV shows so my daughters could go to school and college. There's, you have to do that. Sure, sure. You have to be a professional, but you really got to be careful about why you do stuff. And when it comes right down to it, I do it so I can buy more albums. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. It you seems know? like you're doing so I can well. buy more movies. Yeah. I mean, my agent calls me off and I'm in Tower Records. No, Amoeba. And she says, where are you? It sounds noisy. It says, I'm an amoeba. And she says, how long have you been there? And I said, about an hour. She says, put down the album. Step right. away from the counter. <laughs> <laughs> You're an addict. It's great. Yeah. It's yeah. great. You're passionate about it. Your passion's in all of your work in this conversation. Thank and thank you, thank you, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. And there you go, folks. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Alan Arkish. As I mentioned, this is just a fragment of a much longer conversation. So if you're interested in hearing more, please do follow us on Instagram at Movie Mentors Podcast for additional content and behind the scenes goodies. As always, please tell your friends about us, like, share, and subscribe. This episode was edited by Marcos Boutron Jr. with music by Gabe Sokolov. Thanks so much, and we will be chatting soon.